Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. The Senate has actually begun to do something. I know you may need a moment for the shock to wear off, but Senate Republicans today on, well, on schedule at least for this, released their version of the American Health Care Act or whatever it is they're going to end up calling this thing. We know the House passed its version of the bill a while back. The Senate decided to do a different version, and they need to vote on this, which is another issue we'll be talking about in just a few minutes here because it's not clear that they will have the 50-plus votes necessary to get it through. Uh, and, of course, Democrats are in a complete freakout. This is going to, they say, kill people by the thousands, I don't know, by the millions. It's it's a, a weapon of mass destruction, practically, this this bill. Although you will see some dissonance. There, there's going to be a little bit of a tough time that they have figuring out if the main criticism of this should be that it's too similar to Obamacare. Or that it's terrible and it's going to kill grandmas, old people, kids, you know, it's and it's all about just giving more to the rich. Uh, Let's get into a a little bit of what it does. And uh, we'll also be joined later by my friend Ovik Roy to talk about it. He he thinks it's great. So start there. I I think what we have seen is a, a bowing to a somewhat unpleasant political reality, and that is as follows. Everyone wants someone else to pay for some portion of their health care. And a lot of people want people to pay for most of their health care. And there may be enough people in this country who want other people to subsidize or outright pay for their health care that they can use the democratic processes to get that, to make that happen. Uh, That we have bought into a complex system of wealth redistribution under the uh, guise of health care coverage, seems to be now a, a bipartisan fact of life. Uh, Obamacare, in some form, if this bill passes, uh, survives, in that there will be a number, there are a number of mechanisms in place. I mean, the most obvious one is that there will be tax credits given to people, which a tax credit is just an, another way of saying money, right? You can give someone, you could send them a check in the mail from the federal government for 300 bucks, or you can give them a $300 tax credit. But tax credits will be given to people to buy insurance on markets that are regulated by the federal government. We still don't have the right in this country. It is not possible to just go online like you do for car insurance or home insurance or any number of other insurances and just figure out what plan you want, what should be covered, what's not covered. It's in plain English. You buy it. That's what you've got. And that's reality. 
that's not what this does. So let's just start there. And there's really no movement now in the Senate or, or in the House to speak of uh, that would push for a free market based, a, a free market health care system. We don't have that. There's not a free market in healthcare. There's not going to be a free market in healthcare uh, because we have bought into this. I don't know if you do. I don't know if you know a, a majority of the Republican Party or majority of conservatives in this country would agree with that statement. But most people want some system in place that will subsidize their health care, and that's where we are. So we've we've given up, it seems to me, on having any uh, straightforward, you just get insured and you pay for what you pay for and that's it. That's not going to happen. So it's better, and at least it shows the Senate is doing something, which is, which is nice. So that seems like a nice change. They haven't voted on it yet, and it still has to go through the House. Will the House accept it if the Senate accepts it? Not clear. Um, that would have to go into a conference and then have to figure it out, and then Trump would sign it. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of, of what it uh, what it does and does not do. Um, the Senate bill would give tax credits for people with low incomes or, or incomes of a certain level, and also those who have high medical costs and uh, older Americans um, would have larger. Uh, larger tax credits. So it's a sliding scale of how much tax credit relief you get, but that's really just, again, that's money, right? That's The tax credit is money you're no longer paying to the government that other people are paying to the government, so that's more money in your pocket. Um, for Medicaid, this is where the big change is. Um, it would mean that the additional federal funding for the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare would start to get Peel back in a few years, uh, starting in 2021, and then states would be able to have either block grants or per capita caps, um, and so that that would be a means of uh, limiting Medicaid expansion and Medicaid expenditures on a state by state basis. Uh, and also, you would have in the possibility. Remember, this is the Senate version. So there's a how there's the. Uh, there's the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, the ACA. There's the House-passed health care bill. And now there's the Senate-released but not yet passed health care bill. So we're just I guess we just call it the Senate bill. Uh, so there's that. Taxes. Oh, and then they can—I I cut off what I was going to say here. They can make a requirement for people to work if they're on Medicaid. As for taxes, you're going to hear a lot about this. The, like I said, the Democrats are, are saying this is all about uh, giving to rich people and it's just cruel and, and heartless and, and it's absolutely the worst. In fact, we got Nancy Pelosi weighing in. So sad, Mr. President. Heartless. Mean and heartless. It's mean and heartless, she says. It's just these big, mean, evil Republicans don't want people to have health care. Uh, and in, in case you're wondering, Obama, I'm going to give you more of the details of the bill, but I'm now diverting for a moment into what the Democrats are saying about it, because as you can, we're going to talk about the taxes. And of course, the, any repeal of taxes means that, you know, the fat cats are getting fatter. Right. That's all they want you to think. That's all they want you to know. Um, if they're th this is from Obama, 
President Obama put out a statement today on this uh, on Facebook. You know, Trump's got Twitter, Obama's got Facebook. I mean, this is now this is now how the world communicates. And he starts out in classic Obama Obama fashion. Our politics are divided. Yes, they are, Obama. They have been for a long time. And while I know that division makes it difficult to listen to Americans with whom we disagree, that's what we need to do today. This is a this is classic Obama. Let's listen to the other side. He starts off saying that. Let's have a, a platitude about our divided politics. And then he's going to misrepresent and uh, completely dismember the other side's argument, not based on what it is, but what he says it is. Right. He, he's going to set up a straw man and annihilate it. That's what he's going to do. And he proceeds, of course, in this somewhat lengthy Facebook post to do just that. He writes, Sim- this is President Obama, former President Obama, just letting, letting the country know that his signature achievement, of course, when it comes to legislation, is in some uh, level of jeopardy right now. Although it's not being repealed entirely, so we can understand that. Let's just put that out there. This is not a repeal of Obamacare. This is replacing parts of Obamacare. But it is not a repeal. Okay. That said, this is what Obama writes. Simply put, if there's a chance you might get sick, get old, or start a family, this bill will do you harm. And small tweaks over the course of the next couple weeks, under the guise of making these bills easier to stomach, cannot change the fundamental meanness at the core of this legislation. I hope our senators ask themselves, what will happen to the Americans grappling with opioid addiction who suddenly lose their coverage? What will happen to pregnant mothers, children with disabilities, poor adults and seniors who need long-term care once they can no longer count on Medicaid? What will happen if you have a medical emergency when insurance companies are once again allowed to exclude the benefits you need, send you unlimited bills, or set unaffordable deductibles? What impossible choices will working parents be forced to make if their child's can- a child's cancer treatment costs more than their life savings? That's end quote. Uh, So Obama's going right to it here, saying that Republicans are going to be hurting old people, poor people, uh, children, children with cancer, uh, and that this is is utterly heartless and cruel. The reality, of course, is that it slowly changes a Medicaid expansion that was put in place under Obama that is uh, incredibly expensive and could be ruinous to state budgets if continued. Medicaid is not an effective means of delivering health care for uh, for people. In fact, the largest study ever done on Medicaid shows that whether you have med- whether you're covered under Medicaid or not, your health outcomes are expected to be essentially the same. Uh, so you don't get much benefit from Medicaid other than believing that you have coverage. You see, there's a difference between coverage and care. So while people say, well, what do you mean, Buck? Anyone would rather have Medicaid than not. If your Medicaid can't get you the doctor you need when you need it, what what difference does it really make to you? Sure, you've got a card that says Medicaid, but if it doesn't mean you're getting the care that you need because doctors won't take it, well, then what do you do? You're in the same place you'd be otherwise, which is, I guess, you can take out loans or go into debt or go into an ER, but there's there's nothing that Medicaid does for you in that circumstance that's any better than if you didn't have Medicaid at all. So that's one of the huge objections here from the Democrats, of course, is going to be uh, that this is mean. It's mean to poor people. It's mean to the elderly. 
but when you look at this bill, I mean, I, I think that one of the parts of this that'll be hard for Democrats to really deal with is that it doesn't get rid of pre-existing condition coverage. It keeps in place a lot of the basic architecture of Obamacare. It allows states, as opposed to the federal government, to determine what's acceptable levels of coverage within a state for a health care plan. So you don't have a one-size-fits-all determined in D.C., but you're still going to have at the state level a one-size-fits-all. Uh, and people can then choose. Do I want to live in Texas, where there's probably uh, less definitive regulation about the health care plans that I can get for myself and my employees? Or do I want to live in a state where, you know, uh, pet acupuncture is covered under my health care plan? I mean, I don't think anyone technically covers that, but you know what I mean. Uh, these are decisions that people will be allowed to make if the again if this if this goes through the Senate if the House passes it and then if it becomes law which is those are all big ifs right now because you have some holdouts for one you have uh, Ted Cruz Rand Paul Ron Johnson and Mike Lee and they all have if not concerns at least questions they are not definite yeses and y- you can't lose. Um, more than, uh, you know, can't lose more than a couple of them without this not making it through the Senate, which would be a problem, obviously. So here we are. Uh, We have accepted, and I don't want to just skip over this. We seem to have accepted, and the Republican Party is okay with not repealing Obamacare. They have decided that there's ways to make Obamacare better And they'll do that. They'll go about that. But they're not going to just completely get rid of it, which is what Rand Paul would have wanted. Uh, They are going to work within the established uh, architecture of it, with the the framework of it. So I suppose as this goes, it's okay. It's not what I would have wanted, but I I also realize now that the uh, repeal that we were promised— is now considered a fantasy, which should tell us a lot, by the way, because it was said by pretty much every Republican I can think of for a long time, and they've all backed off on this. Now, they say they don't have 60 votes, and I get that. They say that the Democrats had a supermajority, I understand. Uh, but repeal is not even discussed anymore, full-on out, full on repeal. So this is where we are. Uh, I'll give you some more of the details about this, um, which— I think it's useful so we can understand where this is all going. Keep in mind that there will be changes made in the days ahead. Um, But what do you think about what the Senate's doing here? Um, Do you think that we've been lied to with the decision to just move away from repeal? Is is that a lie or is that just a bending to the political reality of our time? 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We've got a break here and we'll be back with much more. Stay with me. As you can imagine, the uh, Democrat opposition to this Senate health care bill is is full of very reasonable people making well thought out arguments, trying to convince the other side, not just throwing a giant tantrum. But, oh, wait, outside of uh, Senator Mitch McConnell's office, you had dozens of protesters staging a die in and forcing Capitol Hill police to drag them out. Play it. Stay 
No cuts to Medicaid, you see. Once you've given something to people, once you've taken from some to give to others, what you're giving is considered sacred. What you're taking in the form of taxation, additional taxation on those who are earning income, that's that's always negotiable. You can always take more, but whatever you give, you have to keep giving that, right? It's very difficult politically to take away an entitlement from people. Jim in West Virginia on WWVA, what do you think about all this? Well, I think that, uh, A, the federal government shouldn't be involved in the health care It should be a state issue. Uh, B, I think the Republicans now are stalling uh, on, on their version of the health care bill. And, uh, it's really, a, I'm a Trump supporter, and I find it amazing that we elected this man who's done a lot of good things, and everybody's still attacking him, and they're not trying to help with the agenda. Um, very disgusted politicians particularly in Washington, D.C., and um, I, I just don't think that health care should be an issue. But, but yeah, so you don't, you don't believe the federal government. Thank you for calling in, Jim, from West Virginia. Uh, you don't think the federal government should be involved in this. Look, I, I think that's that's the, the conservative position for years. I'm familiar with it because I remember when I was uh, you know covering all this stuff when Mitt Romney was running against Obama, and Obamacare was a, was a huge topic then in the election. That that conservatives were pushing for a complete. We were going to go back to pre-Obamacare healthcare system and then make some fixes to it, and the fixes were going to be more free market. That's not what is happening. I, I just I want to be very clear. That is not what is happening here. Um, and I, I think there are some aspects of this plan that are are good. Sure, they're definitely better. Um, but now we have accepted a core principle. Uh, an economic principle, and really a more—it's really a moral principle that's pushing the economic principle, and that's that we have an obligation. You have an obligation to pay more and get less when it comes to health care, so that other people can get more and pay less. That's what's going on. Uh, now, some people, of course, will benefit more from this if you fall into an income level that is going to be getting these uh, tax credits and keep in mind they're, they're cutting the medical device tax they're cutting the specific tax on owner on uh, people that are earners over two hundred thousand. which a special tax on i love when they say the richest americans i mean making over two hundred thousand dollars a year doesn't make you rich anywhere in this country uh you're not rich i mean you know you're making a nice living but you're not rich and the difference between making 200 grand and making two million is not just mathematically but in terms of uh, life and expenses, it is it is enormous, right? So, uh, anyway, it's just interesting to me that the, the way that they they play these rhetorical games. Um, what do you what do you think about this? Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. The uh, Senate bill is out. The House bill is out. We're gonna have Ovik Roy joining us here shortly to talk about the difference between the two and what he thinks is fantastic about this Senate bill. He's a big proponent, so you're going to hear a very positive review of it. And uh, we'll get into that in just a couple minutes. So uh, stay right there. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields High.
Welcome back, team. We've got uh, Tim in Mississippi on the line on WBV. What's up, Tim? Hey, Buck. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, you asked earlier, is you know, is this just the the uh, you know the political reality that uh, you know that we can't repeal Obamacare, or is it the fact that that congressmen and senators are liars? Um, it's pretty clear they're liars. When they when they didn't have the power to do anything. They were with pitchforks and torches, and they were going to burn down Obamacare, and they were going to repeal it. That's nonsense. They never intended to do that because the only thing that those scumballs even care about is their own political future. I had an aide to a, to a sitting senator, a conversation with him a few weeks ago talking about this thing, and he said, look, he said, we can't take – the, the government incentives. We can't take the subsidies out of this deal because it will be so unpopular. If we if we pass something that is that unpopular, how are we going to be reelected? If we're not reelected, what can we do for you up here? And I said the same thing you're doing now. Not a damn thing, because because all they care about is their own position of power. If they wanted to, and, and I agree with your caller from Virginia, this the federal government has no business in any of this. They definitely have no business taking taxpayer money from people who have worked their entire lives to subsidize someone who, who doesn't have health insurance. Um, I, I've been with the same insurance company since 1999. In January of this year, my premium went from $914 a month to $2,260 a month. Exact same coverage. If these idiots in, in, in the Senate and in the Congress really wanted to do something about this, there are a lot of ways that they could go cut in cost. For example, you watch during primetime TV or on any news broadcast, watch an hour, and you tell me how many pharmaceutical ads there are. They have got so many. They're making, making diseases up now to fit the medicines. Pharmaceutical companies have no – there's no reason for them to be advertising to the public at large. We can't write the prescriptions, that you shouldn't do it. That, that would take a whole lot of money out of the whole system if they'd quit spending on advertising that's out there. Um, selling across state lines, that would lower costs. Allowing the importation of, of pharmaceuticals from, from Canada. But, but they don't care about any of that. The only thing they care about is making sure that their position is retained, and it's disgusting. Uh, look, I, I agree that it's it's not what was promised and that there's a lot that could be done that's not even being discussed right now. So uh, it's it's uh, mixed. It's mixed from my perspective. Tim, thank you for uh, calling in from uh, Mississippi on, on WBUV. Uh, you know who's weighing in on this, though? Gruber. Uh, not, not Hans Gruber, who's the bad guy in Die Hard, but uh, Dr. Jonathan Gruber. Uh I think that's his name, right? Yes, uh, Obamacare architect. You remember this guy? He became kind of famous a while back because he said the following. It's just, you can't do it politically. You just literally cannot do it, okay? Transparent financing, and let's have transparent financing, also transparent spending. I mean, the, this bill was written in a tortured way to make sure CBO did not score the mandate as taxes. If CBO scored the mandate taxes, the bill dies. Lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. And basically, you know, call it the stupidity of the American voter or whatever, but basically that was really, really critical to getting the thing to pass. Really critical to getting the thing to pass. That guy was saying that now and uh, that then rather, and here's what he is saying right now. This is a middle finger to representative democracy.
Wow. So take it take it as you take uh take the advice as you will or not from uh, Dr. Gruber here. Uh, he is a guy that uh, was willing to say at one point that the stupidity of the American voter was what got Obamacare through. And now he's saying, oh, well, this stuff is just uh, this is terrible, terrible what Republicans are doing. All right. We're going to have uh, Ovik, uh, Ovik Roy joining us here in uh, just a few minutes. We'll be right back. All right, team, we've been talking health care. We've got a health care expert with us now to get down into all of the latest. Ovik Roy joins us once again. He is president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He's a Forbes opinion editor, author of Transcending Obamacare and How Medicaid Fails the Poor. Mr. Roy, great to have you back. Hey, Buck. Always a pleasure. So you tweeted today after the Senate Republican health care bill was released. Uh, finished reading the Senate uh, health care bill. Put simply, if it passes, it'll be the greatest policy achievement by a GOP Congress in my lifetime. Oh, my word. Explain this one to me, Ovik. Well, Buck, uh, if you feel differently, tell me the last time a Republican Congress passed a bill that cut spending by a trillion dollars and fundamentally reformed a $500 billion entitlement and put on a more fiscally sustainable path. If you can do that, then you can tell me which bill was more important than this one over the last couple of de- generations. Oh, I'm not saying you're wrong, Ovik. I'm just I'm just amazed by your enthusiasm. I mean, this this is clear. You're you're no two ways about it. You think this is a great bill. Uh, so t- tell us about how it does. How, how does it cut Medicaid? How does it reform? What is what is a welfare program, right? And and why does that matter? So what this bill does, you know, in fact, Buck and I, the many times you and I have talked, whether it's on this show or on TV, we've always talked about the fact that fundamentally what free market advocates have always wanted in our health care system is for more people to control the health care dollars that are being spent by the government or by their employers on their behalf. If you control those health care dollars, you're going to be a better steward of that money, and the market is going to be better in terms of more affordable, lower cost, higher quality, better service, you name it. That's what this bill does. This bill takes single-payer Medicaid entitlement uh, uh, programs and replaces them with market-based insurance markets where people can buy the health insurance that they want to buy. It provides some financial assistance to lower-income people to afford that coverage, but it creates a system in which that individual consumer-driven market for health insurance will actually work, where the premiums will be affordable, where the competition and choice will be robust, and as a result, more and more Americans will be able to take control of their own health care dollars again. What does it mean in terms of Medicaid specifically? Because we know that's where there's a lot of opposition coming uh, from Democrats. You've got uh, former President Obama has released an official, or he's put out a statement. Not, it's not official. It's on Facebook, although I guess that's kind of official these days. Uh, and they're all saying that this is going to this is going to hurt poor people, basically, that 23 million people are going to lose their insurance. What's true? What's not when they say that? Yeah, look, I mean, you're trapping people right now. What Obamacare did was it put 12 million more Americans on Medicaid, a program that has no better health care outcomes than people have if they have no insurance at all. So how is that better for them? If you want to help poor people, give them the opportunity to buy private health insurance which delivers that quality and that coverage and that service. You trap them in single-payer entitlement Medicaid, that's not going to happen. So that's what Obamacare did. 
what this Republican plan will do will free them to buy the coverage that they want as opposed to the coverage the government wants you to buy. Now, so when they say 23 million Americans will lose insurance, this has become the big Democrat talking point on this today. Uh, are, are they just referring to people who will not necessarily have the Medicaid expand will not be covered under Medicaid expansion as per the Obamacare uh, regulations, but will be able to, as with what you're saying, more easily purchase actual health insurance? Okay, so I got we got to step back for one second. So you're you're using this twenty three million dollars. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I mean, right? you know, that's what they're saying. I'm saying, where do they get right. that, and what's what what is what's the reality of that? They're saying twenty three million people are going to lose health insurance. Obviously, if that's just what happens, Ovik, that's a big problem come the midterms. That's a big problem in general. So the number is wrong. The number comes from the Congressional Budget Office, which is is running enormously optimistic projections about future enrollment in Obamacare. So relative to those. Rosy scenarios about how Obamacare is going to cover millions of more people in the future, they think that the Republican bill will do worse. And in fact, the main driver of the Congressional Budget Office's estimates is they believe the individual mandate alone is responsible for the Republican bill covering 18 million fewer people in 2026 than would be covered under Obamacare. So the CBO's model, their economic model, is driven by the fact that they believe the individual mandate is responsible for most of the coverage gains in Obamacare. That's why Obama has, Obamacare has an individual mandate, because Obama actually, if you remember, in 2008, he campaigned against an individual mandate when he ran against Hillary Clinton in 2008. But he converted when he became president and supported the mandate because the CBO told them it would juice his enrollment numbers in their model by 16 million people at that time. So all that to say that this 23 million number is is fraudulent. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a real number. It's not what will actually happen in the real world. In the real world, the Republican bill could lead to more people having health insurance than do today because, and with no individual mandate, because more people will be able to afford the coverage they can shop for in a market in which premiums come down and choice is expanded. Speaking to Ovik Roy, he is president of the Foundation for Research on Equal opportunity. Ovik, for, for people that are listening, what is the difference between, what, what are the key differences? I'm sure there are many. I know I, I looked at the Senate bill. I read through as much of it as I could today. It's like 143 pages. Uh, but what, what are the key differences between what's been rolled out here by the Senate and what the House passed? So there's, uh, there's two key differences. The first key difference is the structure of the tax credits that, uh, that people can use to buy health insurance under the Senate bill versus the House bill. Under the Senate bill, they do a much better job of making sure that people in their 50s and 60s, people who are a little older, can afford premiums. They do a much better job making sure that people who live in areas where health care costs are unusually high, whether it's in a state or a county where just because of cost of living or other things, your costs are higher than other people, it makes sure that the, the premium assistance is adjusted for that. And so it makes sure that lower-income people who can't afford health insurance can do a better job of doing so in the private market. So the tax credit structure under the Senate bill is way, way better than the tax credit structure under the House bill. It will make sure that more people have health insurance in a private insurance market. Uh, The second piece is the Medicaid piece. So what the bill does is it refines uh, the Medicaid reforms in the House bill, which are similar, but the, the Senate bill refines them so that they are more gradual in taking effect in the short term 
but much stronger over the long term in terms of reducing the overall long-term growth of Medicaid spending. So in terms of our long-term fiscal crisis in this country, which is driven by entitlements like Medicaid and Medicare, this bill does an enormous amount to put the Medicaid program, which is the program for low-income individuals that was passed by the Great Society programs in 1965, that program will be on a much more fiscally sustainable path than it has been previously because of this bill. Really historic reform on that front. Is it fair to say, then, that this is, this is in effect, assuming that the House were to pass this and Trump were to sign it, this would then mark a massive welfare reform because Medicaid is a form of welfare? It's not only is it massive welfare reform. If you look at how much money was saved by the 1996 welfare reform, it was about you know, a couple hundred billion dollars. This bill will uh, reform the Medicaid program by $880 billion in the first 10 years and by a lot more over the long term by growing Medicaid spending at a much slower rate than it would have otherwise. So this, this Medi- if this bill did nothing, if, it, if this bill did nothing except reform Medicaid, it would be the biggest domestic policy victory of our lifetime. But it also does all this other stuff to roll back and repeal Obamacare and replace it with better reforms. So why do we have, and we're speaking to Ovik Roy, everybody, he's a Forbes opinion editor. Uh, Ovik, why do we have uh, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, and, uh, and a couple of others saying in the Senate that they're, they're not sold on this yet? What are their objections? It's, it's, te- it's uh, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, and uh, Ron Johnson I see here. Yeah, I mean, they each have uh, somewhat different uh, objections that they've po- po- raised. So Ron Johnson's objection is that he just hasn't had enough time to, to review the bill, so he wants to make sure that the bill uh, does what it promises to do in terms of uh, reducing premiums and things like that. So that's what he said, that he wants to take some time. He's not really, I would say, a firm no. I think he wants to, he wants to kind of review the bill a little bit more. Um, Rand Paul basically says that, he wants to repeal Obamacare and go home. He doesn't really want a replacement of Obamacare. And so any sort of replacement isn't really good enough for him, which is, you know, he's certainly a position that uh, he has and many other people have, but that's not where the Senate is. There aren't any, anything close to 50 votes in the Senate for a repeal and go home uh, package. It has to be a repeal and replace. So Rand Paul is probably going to be a no vote, and there's probably no way to get his vote, which is too bad because I think that's going to empower the moderates in the Senate uh, Republican caucus to have more power. In terms of Mike Lee and Ted Cruz, I think what they're hoping for is more uh, regulatory rollback in the bill so that premiums can come down even further. I certainly root for them uh, to achieve that goal, uh, but there's going to be some challenges there on two fronts. First, are the moderates in the Republican Party going to go along with that? Uh, That's going to be a hard sell for them, unfortunately. And the second piece is, can you actually do those kinds of regulatory reforms through the reconciliation process. The Senate parliamentarian has indicated that a lot of these regulatory reform ideas can't pass through the reconciliation process because the reconciliation process isn't really supposed to be about regulation. It's supposed to be about spending and taxing and the deficit. So that, those are the challenges, but um, I'm optimistic that, uh, that Lee, Cruz, and Johnson uh, will be able to uh, you know, uh, make some changes to the bill that, uh, that make it better. And, um, I, I, I fully hope and expect that they'll end up supporting the bill with those changes in place. It is fair to say, Ovik, that this is not this is not a, a, a complete repeal of Obamacare. No, and I think it was unfair to expect this to be a complete repeal of Obamacare because of the fact 
that remember, Obamacare was passed with 60, 6-0, 60 votes in the Senate. Um, and Republicans don't have 60 votes in the Senate. They have 50 votes in the Senate. And unless you want to blow up the filibuster, that does tie your hands in terms of the number of things you can repeal. But let's, let's take stock here for a second, Buck. This bill repeals nearly all. It certainly rolls back and repeals and or repeals all of the Obamacare tax increases. This bill repeals all of the Obamacare Medicaid expansion. In terms of the private individual insurance market, it doesn't repeal all of the regulations, but it repeals the most important and the most costly of those regulations. And it replaces Obamacare with a much better system that's going to move us more in the direction of, uh, of long-term uh, ins health insurance markets that work for everyday people. Plus, as a bonus, they did this reform of the legacy Medicaid program. Uh, so it's not just about Obamacare, this bill. And that, that reform, the legacy Medicaid program, sometimes gets lost in all the news coverage. It's so important and such a transformative piece of why this bill is a real victory for conservatives. And so just in closing here, Ovik, you'd give this an A minus, an A. What would you say for this bill? Well, I'd either give it an A or an A plus, depends. If you grade them on curve, which is how hard it is to navigate the politics of health care, and how hard it is to get 50 people in the Senate to vote for a bill. If this bill passes, I would give it an A+, plus because it's that hard to do something like this. You know, from a standpoint of, you know, as a putting, putting on my think tank pointy head, you know, and, and just saying, like, what would I really want in my dream world? Does it, does it include every, all of that? No. So maybe you give it an A or an A- minus based on that. But I think in terms of the realistic political possibilities, it's built an A+. All right. Some uh, some positive stuff from Ovik here. Ovik Roy, everybody, president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Ovik, great to have you, man. Thanks for calling in. Thanks, Buck. Team, we are going to hit a break. We'll be back with much more. Stay with me. Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I'm not entertained! The Buck is back. I was elected to serve the citizens of Iowa and Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Florida and all 50 states and all 320 million American citizens. Played some of that for you last night live as it was happening. President Trump in Iowa kicking it like the old days, you know, just, just doing his thing up there. I, he went for over an hour. He was hitting on all kinds of topics, and it, it, it hit me last night after the show uh, when I when I went home because what I tend to do is continue to think about the show even when I'm not on the show um, and it hit me that this is really the first week that in in months um, that I can remember at least where you have not had some bombshell either real or hyped or fake news but but you know at least what is said to be a bombshell of uh, of some kind against the administration. I mean, this is the first time that there seems to have been any respite uh, in the Trump-Russia collusion uh, circus that's been going on now for so long. And once again, we are in this position where Trump 
during the primary and then during the general election, I think there were points at which you thought to yourself, there's just no way. He can't endure. He's not going to be able to keep this up. He won't push through. It's just too much arrayed against him, too much pressure, too many haters, too all of that, right? All of that, and yet he did go forward, and yet he did manage to win. And last night he said, uh, all, 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 all they do is win, win, win. Um, and he there at one point was interrupted by protesters, and it, it, was a, it was a classic Trump rally moment that followed, of course. You can imagine a couple of protesters at a Trump rally want to start shouting him down. This is what happens. To know very well, Steve Scalise and everyone recovering from the assault. Hecklers are out in the audience. They're getting booed. There you go. So they start chanting uh, USA, and it, w- it was a return to the Trump that many people were so excited about and, and voted for. You have the Republican Senate bill for health care out today. Trump's had a, Trump has had a strong week, and I just have to reflect on how this administration has been through so much uh, opposition so far. Uh, from from the press and uh, you know, from the Democrats, but really the press does the work of the Democrat Party, right? So it, those two things are symbiotic organisms. They are inextricably linked. They are tied together. You can't talk about the press or the Democratic Party and vice versa. So they've been suggesting the president will be impeached. People have brought up even the uh, amendment that would allow for removing the president for office at, for being incapacitated they uh, yes I, and i know look that, that these pressures and these pitfalls have not entirely gone away that there's this special counsel investigation that will be continuing on but i do think it's remarkable and it's worth taking stock of it all for a moment that here we are uh, this is the it's the start it was a start of summer yesterday here we are first year in office and uh, it's looking like the Republican Party might have, and I know this could all change next week with, you know, oh, look at this story about Paul Manafort and Russia and the Kremlin, and, you know, there could be any number of things. But you look at the uh, the trajectory right now, and they've thrown everything that they have at the administration. They've put everything that they can up against Trump and, and what he's trying to accomplish, and they haven't been able to stop it. They They haven't shut him down. They haven't turned, I think even more remarkable, they haven't turned the American people who aren't already anti-Trump against him, which I think is what the media has been preparing for all along. I think that's been the hope here. And this special election, as I said, the one in Georgia, the uh, sixth district, that election was perhaps the moment of recognition for the Democrats that the Russia collusion narrative was not in fact sufficient to turn the American people, enough of the American people against Trump and against the Republican Party for the midterms. Now, I know that that hasn't happened yet. It's a year off, more than a year off, and a lot can change between now and then. But I think there are at least concerns that it's not 
that what they're doing is not working. And all this Russia stuff, unless you live in New York or D.C. or one of the major media markets that these uh, different channels and newspapers are predominantly appealing to, you don't really care about all this Russia stuff. You actually do care about health care and you care about immigration. And oh, speaking of immigration, actually, the president spoke a bit about that last night. Let me just uh, share with you some of his comments specifically on immigration. I believe the time has come for new immigration rules which say that those seeking admission into our country must be able to support themselves financially and should not use welfare for a period of at least five years. And yes, we will build the wall. We've already started planning. It will be built. I'm a builder. That's what I love to do. That's probably what I do best. I'm a builder. And we're thinking of something that's unique. We're talking about the southern border. Lots of sun, lots of heat. We're thinking about building the wall as a solar wall so it creates energy and pays for itself. And this way, Mexico will have to pay much less money. And that's good. Okay, so a couple of things here. Uh, One, the president's statement that immigrants shouldn't go on welfare for five years Uh, The current immigration code, current immigration law, says that immigrants uh, should not be public charges. So that's already it's already the law that we should be uh, not allowing in people who are going to go on welfare right away. Now, is that enforced? No. Could it be tightened up? Are there ways that we could expand it or clarify exactly what is and is not acceptable? Sure. Of course. All all of that is is true. Um, But it just I I think it is worth noting that already that's supposed to be the law. You're not uh, you're not supposed to be able to come into this country and go on welfare right away as an immigrant. Um, but then his, his other statement, I, I read this article today where you have a solar expert and a professor uh, talking about exactly this. Trump must be aware of this or he, he must have read this. Uh, he must have read this somewhere or have heard about this idea of a border wall that's really a 2,000-mile-long solar field. Uh, this is what, this is the Wall Street Journal. you got uh, Vasilis Thanakis and Ken Zweibel writing in the Wall Street Journal, a shiny border wall that pays for itself. Forget a traditional barrier and build a 2,000-mile solar field along the border. Here's what they say. Resolving the political impasse between Mexico and the U.S. over a border wall requires innovative thinking. How about this? Presidents Donald Trump and Enrique Peña Nieto should work together to construct a solar wall, a massive string of photovoltaic panels on the Mexican side of the border. Building on our previous research, uh, Homero Arigis and James Ramey proposed the idea late last year. After studying the concept, we have concluded that the idea is not only technically and economically feasible, it might even be more practical than a traditional wall. I mean, this is pretty pretty out there stuff, right? I mean, I don't think anybody, and, and maybe it still is, but these guys are saying it's it's legit. You could do this. And let me, let me get into why. Um, they say that we estimate that building a roughly 2,000-mile-long single-row solar wall would cost less than a billion dollars 
plus site preparation costs such as fencing and road construction. Uh, road construction. Compare that with Trump's wall, which would cost tens of billions of dollars. Okay, so they're they're telling me that uh, that this is economically feasible. But what about the benefits from it? So now let's assume that their cost projections here are right, and, and who knows, man? I've and you I have no idea what it would cost to build a giant solar wall at the border. I do know that solar panels tend to be more expensive than people realize, but uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, here's what they say. That uh, Mexico's central plateau deserts have a dry, unclouded, low-latitude, and relatively cool climate, which is perfect for photovoltaics. They calculate that one string of solar panels would have a power capacity of 0.8 uh, gigawatts, and that that would produce 2,000 gigawatt hours of electricity a year. So this is enough for a half a million homes in the U.S. in terms of their energy. I mean, it's still, it seems like a pretty out there idea, but I mean, just think, just think about this for a second. Imagine that Trump. Not only because it would still be a wall, right? You'd have some fencing around it and it would be. But imagine that Trump found a way, a cost effective way to build a wall that was actually renewable energy and that was providing energy and economic benefits to the surrounding areas. And I mean, it would it would just be it would be fun to watch him try to flesh this proposal out a little bit to see all of the the media um the, the media insanity that would result, right? They would completely lose their minds over this. Uh, they would oppose it, even though it's something that generally should fit into an area that they like, right? I mean, they, they like renewable energy. They like solar power. Um, but here's a uh, here's a situation where Trump could shock everybody. Now, I, shock, sorry, I'm not trying to, electricity, shock, you get it. Um, but I don't think that uh, this is going to happen, but I do think it's an interesting idea, and I think it's interesting that he mentioned it last night. Oh, one, one other noteworthy moment from the speech that got a lot of attention. Um, he said, when it comes to who should manage the economy, here, here's what the president of the United States, here's his opinion. So somebody said, why did you appoint a rich person to be in charge of the economy? I said, no, it's true. And Wilbur's a very rich person in charge of commerce. I said, because that's the kind of thinking we want. I mean, you know, really, because they're representing the country. They don't want the money. They're representing the country. And they had to give up a lot to take these jobs. They gave up a lot. But these are people that are great, brilliant business minds, and that's what we need, that's what we have to have, so the world doesn't take advantage of it. We can't have the world taking advantage of us anymore. And I love all people, rich or poor, but in those particular positions, I just don't want a poor person. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? If you insist, I'll do it. But I like it better this way, right? So Trump is making his case here for having wealthy businessmen in positions of economic influence. Um, look, clearly they have some background and and some record of success in uh, in the in operating in the economy, which I think is true. I do believe that you are you you don't have the Clinton effect, which is that you are less likely to have really blatant, obvious corruption in the form of people wanting to get 
paid incurring influence and all that stuff. Uh, so that's a good thing. Um, and then in his final comment about, you know, I don't want a, I don't want a poor person. I think what he meant is I don't want a career bureaucrat. I, I will do some Trump's translation here. I don't want someone who's working and making, you know, f- uh, federal government wages to be in charge of what everybody else is making and and having influence and a determination on economic policy. Not in charge of what they're making, but you know what I mean. Having an influence on on everything else that's going on. So that, that but that got everyone's attention, of course, right? But this is the people like the show. They like Trump out there just speaking about stuff. It is refreshing. You see some. I mean, you see all these. Senators with the grandstanding down at these hearings, and you, you see all these other politicians with this just poll-tested uh, nonsense that, you know, do they care about it? Do they not? Who knows? It's all the same to them. They're just trying to say what they have to say to get elected. When Trump lets it rip and uh, is really just speaking off the cuff, I think that's when his supporters find the most to clap and cheer and yell about. Um, and, and he was doing it last night, man. It was uh, it was a, it was a bit of a victory lap. I know others have been saying that, but it was a, a victory lap yesterday for Trump because this has been a a big a big week for the administration. And just that they have endured, and endurance is one of the most underrated but important characteristics a person, a company, an administration can have. Endure? Can you endure? This administration has endured a lot since January, and really, when you think about it. They're still on track. Still on track. And also, by the way, still not Hillary. Still not. Oh, that's cold. No, still not Hillary. We'll hit a break. We'll be right back. We got some calls up. Let's take them. Barry in Mississippi, WBUV. What's going on, sir? Yeah, Buck, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. You may remember, I'm the guy that called because I'm all excited about getting rid of the mandates of Obamacare. And uh, so I have this question that you might pose to Rand Paul or one of the four. You just might be uh, talking to him between now and when they actually do vote. So ask him or just, you know, let's pose this question. Would you really vote to keep the 29-hour work week and the individual mandate simply because this bill doesn't cut spending enough. Uh, you know, because my point would be those things have just got to go at the very first opportunity. And uh, spending, they can always work on Medicaid. Well, you heard what Avic Roy said about uh, Medicaid. I've been hearing that that, rant, that uh, Paul Ryan had done a fabulous job on rewriting uh, Medicaid, and now they've improved even more, according to Avic Roy. But uh, so the big deal to me, Obamacare is – the mandate i mean never before has government been able to tell the people they have to do something uh for no reason than they exist and and then the 29 hour work week was the worst disaster in to to the the working person ever yeah well the senate Uh, the senate bill does get rid of the individual mandate although you can be you you can uh be penalized for getting back into the market if you have a, a gap in coverage so that deserves a yes right away just vote yes and move on and let's get rid of this junk and then work on more cost savings uh, later. You know, like you said, Medicaid was costing too much. Uh, that, that was Rand Paul's. I heard him interviewed earlier today, and that's his real angle is he still thinks there's too much uh, cost. He said we made— Well, mathematically speaking, he's right. It's politically that I think he's got more—there's more issues to be dealt with there. But 
But Barry, I hear you, man. Thank you for calling in. Uh, let's real quick. Here's what Paul Ryan said about why he doesn't back the Senate's bill yet. We're open to negotiation, but we want the bill to look more like a repeal. Um, we're afraid that when we read the bill, that it actually looks like a reiteration or a keeping of Obamacare. As we look at the expense of the bill, we actually believe in the first year or two that it may well cost more than Obamacare. Oh, sorry, that was obviously Senator Rand Paul, but that's what I meant. Uh, that's why Rand Paul does not um, does not support the Senate bill as it stands right now. It has to do with what our, what our caller was saying, which he says it's it's expensive, and it keeps some of the Obamacare uh, basic structure in place. Uh, we're going to switch up gears here and talk a little bit about the latest on the investigation into uh, the shooting at, of, uh, of Representative Scalise, as well as other members of Congress. Violence against Republicans. What's going on with it? We'll talk about that in just a few. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. All right, welcome back, everyone. We've got Alex Griswold on the line. He is a staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon. Alex, good to have you. Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, so give us some updates on, uh, first of all, what do we know about what the uh, the Scalise shooter did right before the attack? He, he was he was Googling the, con- the 2017 Republic- Republican convention? Uh, that's exactly right. The FBI has been going through his search history and everything that he's been looking at. They've confirmed, well, first of all, they've confirmed that the, the social media accounts with all the, the hateful postings about Trump and Republicans were indeed about him. And they found that the night before the attack, he Googled 2017 Republican convention, which is uh, certainly telling about what his potential motive could have been. Yeah, I, I think we've gone way past wondering what the motive is. And I know I, I'm going to be talking later in the show about that FBI press conference, which I just am still in in shock at some of the statements that were made by senior FBI officers to the press there. But but I'll put that aside for a second here. You have a piece on the Free Beacon. 30 GOP congressmen have been attacked or threatened since May. What's what's going on with that? Um, well, it's exactly what it's on the cover. Um, I went through, I tallied up all the press reports I could find of anyone who's been threatened or attacked who's been a GOP congressman uh, since the beginning of May, so for the past two months. And it's a shocking number. It's 30. Uh, most of those, obviously, were in the, uh, the school shooting and the GOP baseball shooting, but this is something that's happening all over the nation. I mean, you have the, the representative in Tennessee, uh, David Kustoff, who had to be run off the road. <laughs> Uh, by an angry constituent who then started pounding on his door. Uh, you, ha- you have a representative in Virginia who, who got a whole bunch of death threats. They're saying terrible things. Uh, they threatened to kill his wife, threatened to kill his kids, threatened to kill his dogs. I mean, we're talking about, uh, about eight separate incidences in the past month, uh, two months rather, uh, which is a bit crazy. Do you think, are, are you someone who uh, b- believes that the political environment now is is particularly toxic against Republicans, that all the anti-Trump hatred has piled together with the, with the media egging it on and, and encouraging this all the time? And do, do you believe the environment has become toxic? Oh, certainly. I mean, whenever you, you're you on air uh, 24-7 talking about how Republicans, if they pass X, Y, and Z bill, how it's going to kill you, how it's going to kick these people out of the country, how families are going to be torn apart, uh, basically, and 
when you go out and say, you know, so-and-so is like Hitler, uh, well, there's that old hypothetical, uh, you know, wouldn't you kill Hitler if you had the chance? And then we're surprised when people sort of take the rhetoric at face value and try to do just that. Yeah, I was saying this about some of the rhetoric that I heard myself uh, last year from Black Lives Matter protests. You know, when you have people chanting about how cops are murdering young black men, killing young black men for sport, uh, that is that is what was being said there. And people will react to that. Uh, And if you really believe that, if it's not just if you don't take it as just rhetoric, then extreme measures start to seem reasonable to someone. And I think that we're in a similar situation with the media saying that uh, Donald Trump is a traitor, that he is a a Russian uh, agent of sorts, and that he has betrayed the country, and that he's also a fascist who will destroy the country. That that's not normal political rhetoric. We have a, this was not what was being said. Sure, they called Bush a war criminal at some point in time, you know, or they began calling him a war criminal, uh, but they at least waited a little while. It, it wasn't from day one. Sure, exactly. And, uh, I mean, even with the war criminal rhetoric, there's that idea that he's killing someone, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. When you talk about how Donald Trump has ruined America and how America, as we know it, is ruined and how the GOP is going to take away your health care and let people die, uh, that takes on a whole much, uh, much more personal level. And this, of course, all feeds into itself because then the Democrats say it. So then Republicans come back with more inflammatory rhetoric, which leads to more inflammatory rhetoric. So, uh, I mean, things are bad. It's, it's the worst it's been for a long time. I don't know if you had any chance to see it, but I know there's a comparison that the, the, the Federalist has done of the way that the media covered the Gabby Giffords shooting and the way that they have covered and really not covered and quickly forgotten about the Alexandria Cong- you know, attempted mass assassination of GOP congressmen. There, there's, a, there's some pretty stark differences. Oh, sure. Um, I'll, I'll give a little bit of leeway only because uh, so far there have been no fatalities, thank God, in the GOP uh, baseball shooting. That was, you know, grace of God there. Uh, there were fatalities in the Tucson shooting. You did have a live shooter who was taken alive. So that sort of fed the story a bit longer because it wasn't entirely clear why he had done it and he was appearing in court, that sort of thing. But it's a great point. I mean, if it's hard to believe that if 30 Democrats had received death threats in the span of two months, during the passage of the Affordable Care Act, that the media would have not uh, run with it, that, that you wouldn't see all these stories about a trend, that you wouldn't see all these stories about politicization, but instead they just sort of moved on. We're speaking to Alex Griswold. He is a staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon. You can check out his latest at freebeacon.com. We're going to switch gears kind of abruptly here for a second, Alex, just because I, I wanted to hear about uh, Wonder Woman Gal Gadot. Which, I should, first of all, have you seen Wonder Woman, and should I see it? I have. Uh, I thought it was fine. I'd see it. Okay, so you give you give me the the go check it out signal, uh, but but she did not earn two percent of Henry Cavill's Man of Steel salary. What's what's this all about? You wrote about this. Yes, uh, this is it's a bit of a silly story, but I think it's important to make a larger point about how sort of fake stories get picked up and how uh, they get picked up because they feed into narratives. Uh, so basically. There was a story written about how supposedly Gal Gadot only made 2% of Superman's salary, and it was based on a complete misunderstanding of how salaries work in Hollywood. Uh, She made $300,000 as a base salary, but the way superhero movies work is she makes that money, and then depending on how much uh, money the movie makes, she gets a percentage of that. Uh, On top of that, you you had Superman's salary, which was supposedly $14 million which is completely outrageous and makes no sense. And so basically I dug around, and the story that first spread this 
got it from a Forbes story, and then the Forbes story didn't even say where they got the number from. And as best as can tell, it was sort of just made up out of midair, and people just ran with it. Are you telling me there's Superman fake news? There is, there is Superman fake news. Even All right. That, that's a thing that can happen, everybody. Alex Griswold of the Free Beacon, thank you for joining us. Good to have you. Sure, thanks for having me. Team, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. Democrats lose a congressional race that the whole country's focused on, that the media has been building up to be the moment in time that Trumpism meets its first major political defeat, and it doesn't happen. They got to find someone to blame. They have to find some consequences. Or they have to inflict some consequences. Or they can find them. I don't know. Inflict them, find them, something like that. I talk a lot. So they're going to have to do something. they got to blame somebody. And there's a mutiny against Pelosi happening within the party right now, a Pelosi mutiny. And you have uh, Democratic Rep. Kathleen Rice, for example, saying the following. Nancy Pelosi was a great speaker. She is a great leader. But her time has come and gone. Ooh. Her time has come and gone. Nancy's not going to like this kind of talk. She's used to being very important and very rich. She is not going to want to hear that she is no longer necessary, a necessary part of the Democratic Party uh, and its leadership. And then you also have Democratic congressman continuing on with this Pelosi mutiny. Democratic congressman Tim Ryan saying the following. I don't think people in the Beltway are realizing just how toxic the democratic party brand is in so many of the countries you think nancy pelosi is more toxic than donald trump you know what the honest answer is in some areas of the country yes she is of course she is she definitely is in most of georgia uh see but what 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 was shown to the American people or to people who are paying attention. A lot of people, look, if you don't want to pay attention to the Georgia 6th congressional election, fine, right? I mean, it doesn't really, this is like so many things I'll tell you about here, to be honest. Interesting for us to talk about. I like to get, but unlike when, we, when we're discussing healthcare, that's that's you. That's your dollars. That's your checking account every month. What we're talking about there is going to affect you. That's you in the waiting room wondering if you're going to get to see the doctor you want to see. That, that there's no escape, right? There's some things we talk about here. There's no you know, congressional sixth district race, interesting p- politics. You know, it's uh, I find this stuff to be um, intellectually engaging and, and there's takeaways from it. But, you know, look, you could say you don't really care. But if you were watching and I'd say, yeah, I get it. If you were watching this thing closely, what you saw on display is that Nancy Pelosi represents the um, moneyed districts of the Democrat Party. Nancy Pelosi represents the big donor class of the Democrat Party. You know, the uh, the people that are writing the big checks, the people that set the national agenda, who fund the think tanks, who fund the political campaigns. And they take for granted some voters, right? The Democratic Party just assumes minorities will vote for them. Democratic Party's got that already just all set up. But when it comes to reaching parts of the country that are Democrat but not coastal, Democrat but not elite, um, in the sense that they're not tied in with the 
the I mean, elites not even we didn't even really have good terminology for this, right? But uh, those the the MSNBC watchers of the country, if you will, when they have to reach out to those people, uh, they stumble because there's a disconnect between being a Democrat in the South, for example, in a place like Georgia, and the people that write checks and support the Nancy Pelosi's of the world. There there is a real disconnect there. Uh, Pelosi, though, of course, she she rejects all of this, and I love this. She's hey, I'm a, I'm a... I'm a master, a master legislator. Some of your fellow Democrats have blamed you in part for the loss in Georgia, the other losses in the special elections. They say it's time for a fresh perspective. Is it time for you to step aside and allow for some new leadership? Some. We always have this discussion. One is one, two is a couple, has been three a is a few, some, some. Uh, but I feel very confident in the support that I have in my caucus. No, I, my timing is not about them. So you want me to sing my praises? Is that what you're saying? Why should I? Well, I'm a, a master legislator. I am a, a, a strategic, politically astute leader. I am uh, a, my uh, uh, leadership is recognized by many around the country, and that is why I'm able to attract the support that I do. Look at how, look at how uh, prickly she was there with all. Look at, ooh, she was very, hmm, uh, did not, did not appreciate this. I mean, I, I haven't seen somebody get that snippy with a reporter from a senior Democratic leadership since someone from NPR pointed out to Hillary during a radio interview that she flip-flopped on gay marriage because it was convenient for her. Well, I don't like that you're telling me what's true about myself, and I'm Hillary. Uh, so, yeah, it kind of reminded me of that. <laughs> Nancy, uh, first of all, I'm a master legislator. Wow, this woman has really high self-regard, doesn't she? Uh, to, to, marry, to marry into about $50 million and run in the safest congressional district for a Democrat in the country and just say whatever you have to say to keep getting elected, I, I don't know. It's... Uh, Pretty, pretty incredible stuff. Um, Pelosi has never struck me as particularly astute when it comes to any issue. Uh, she is able to just be as progressive as she can possibly be because of where she runs. She's like a rich suburb of San Francisco is Pelosi's district. Uh, Marin County, which I do hear is very beautiful, by the way, but I digress. So, yeah, the Pelosi mutiny is not going to last very long. Uh, she, I don't think she's going anywhere because these these Democrats, it's really about serving themselves. You know, they pretend it's always about serving the public, but the the egos on look, the egos for every politician. Let's not pretend for a second, right? For most of these people, it's a lot of talk about oh, I want to serve the public interest, and I'm a public servant, and blah blah blah. And then they're like, oh my gosh, how can I get on cable news? And you know, I want to go give a speech at the biggest think tank in D.C. And I. I, the, the the line between politician and celebrity in this country. I mean, look at the president. I'm not I'm, I'm not going to deny this for a second. The line between celebrity and politician is is there a line really? I mean, I think our politicians have become celebrities, and obviously vice versa. So Pelosi, though, and and people like her, they, they remind me now Pelosi and Schumer of those in media who just it's never time for them to stop. You know, it's like Dan Rather. Uh, Larry King, you know, the, the, the Larry King disorder where, you know, he's the only guy who can, like, ask basic questions on TV. Nobody else can do it the way Larry King did it, you know. 
hey, without me, you know, who's going to ask, who's going to ask the questions like, so how are you doing? Uh, you know, it's okay, Larry. There are other people who can do, in fact, other people have been doing that job since you left, but you know, he's on like some random channel somewhere and Dan Rather's doing some stuff. I mean, you know, it's when you've instead of being grateful that they've had the careers that they do, and this is true of these politicians like Pelosi and uh, and Schumer too. They're just they just never they're never willing to walk away from it. You know, it's never time never time to retire uh, gracefully. It's always always has to be um, well past uh, when they are in their political prime or in their media prime. We're talking about you know Larry King, uh, that guy that guy was amazing. Um, I heard that he wanted to come back when Piers Morgan took over his show, that, that he wanted to come back. And he was like, come on, I'm better than that guy. Which was probably true, but... No, he's not. Don't say that. Uh, but yeah. Oh, by the way, I, I said to you, uh, just to, to give you a sense of... I, I like to point out when Democrats agree with me and say that my political analysis is, is correct, although they're not saying it about me, but they're just agreeing with what I had said without knowing it. You had uh, Chris Murphy who's a Democrat from Connecticut, who's one of these guys who likes to go on TV a lot too. And he said on MSNBC um, the following, the fact that we have spent so much time talking about Russia, you know, has been a distraction from what should be the clear contrast between Democrats and the Trump agenda, which is on economics. Here you have at least one Democrat, and I think there are others too, who, like I said, right after that election in, in, uh, in Georgia, Right after the 6th District was decided in favor of the Republican, they're like, oh, wait a second. You mean all these unsubstantiated allegations about Russia and Trump and collusion aren't going to win the midterms for us necessarily? You mean that the American people don't stay up late at night, shaking in their beds, worried about the next shoe to drop about Russia-Trump collusion? I, I think that for some Democrats, this has, like, this has become a delusion that they have bought into and o- only uh, a-, a few of them at this point have recognized it for what it is. Many others are going to cling to this, and they're hoping that something will come out of the special counsel that will revive all this and, and actually take it to the next level. I think that's highly unlikely. But even the Democrats, even some Democrats, are admitting that this special election was a reminder to them that the American people overall don't care about Russia and all that stuff nearly as much as hosts on MSNBC and the uh, front page of the New York Times does. And yes, they have readers and and viewers, but there are a lot of other people in the country that aren't into that stuff, and they get to vote, and they have a say. And they'd rather the discussion be about the economy and about health care and about, like I said, the things that whether you care about them or not, they care about you. They affect your life. And some, some Russia hack conspiracy theory does not affect your life other than the fact that it's dominated the TV airwaves on the news for a long time. Anyway, the Pelosi mutiny's not going anywhere, but I thought it was interesting that that's what's happening right now, but she will uh, she will be around for quite a while in leadership. Uh, team, we've got much more, including the FBI press conference from yesterday. We'll be right back. Did you have any communication with any Russian businessmen or any Russian nationals? I don't believe I had any conversation with Russian businessmen or Russian nationals. Are you aware of Although any communication? Although a lot of people were at the convention, it's conceivable that somebody came up to me. Sir, I have just a few. Well, you let me qualify it. I, I, if, okay. if I don't qualify it, you'll accuse me of lying. 
So I need to be correct as best I can. I do want you to be honest. And I'm not able to uh, uh, be rushed this fast. It makes me nervous. Sir, uh, I'm not asking about the principal. I'm asking when well, you, you would be asked the these question. questions and you would rely on that policy, Chairman, did you not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for you refusing to answer the Chairman, majority of questions that have been asked? Chairman, should be allowed to answer the question. Senator, Senator Harris, let him answer. Please that was Kamala Harris, uh, who uh, Kamala Harris, who was interrupted uh, a couple of times during Senate hearings, and uh, she um, got a lot of attention for this. Now she was engaged in a pretty aggressive back and forth with the uh, senator that were with rather uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and it's understood that usually in the Senate. You, because decorum is such an important part of their proceedings, or supposed to be, you let witnesses answer questions. You don't berate them, you don't badger them, but it was viewed as sexism at the time, right? That's what was implied. New York Times here writing, Miss Harris, a former prosecutor, employs a rapid-fire questioning pace more commonly seen in courtrooms, uh, but the moments were notable as the second time in a week that Miss Harris, who is of Indian and Jamaican descent and as the only minority woman on the committee, was interrupted by two male colleagues during a hearing. So uh, what the Times is saying here is that she's interrupted because she's a minority female, not because she was being rude to a witness, which seems to me to be the more logical explanation, but of course not for the New York Times. Uh, I just wanted to set that uh, as the context for our discussion here because there is another, uh, there is another opportunity, there's another time when the women of the Senate uh, would have had plenty of chance to speak up, would have had all the time, all the time that they uh, could have wanted to ask questions. And yet, the uh, female members of the Senate, including Senator Kamala Harris, were strangely quiet. Ayan Hersi Ali, whom we've had on the show before, and Asra Nomani, were giving a uh, were giving testimony before the Senate or were were speaking before the Senate on the issue of ideology and terror, understanding the tools, tactics, and techniques of violent extremism. They were talking about jihad, but the precursor ideology to jihad, which is political Islam or Islamism, um, and very important distinctions that uh, Miss Ali. Uh, made in her her testimony, which I read the full transcript of, um, and but before I, before I get into some of those points, she was just surprised. I wanted to point out that uh, Senator Kamala Harris, a Democrat from California, uh, was and and Claire McCaskill, um, as well as and and Maggie Hassan and North Dakota's Heidi Heidkamp. None of them, none of these women uh, during a Senate committee on uh, on Homeland Affairs and governmental uh, Homeland Security and governmental affairs. None of these women, Heidkamp, Hassan, McCaskill or Harris asked a single question, not a single question for these two female minority Muslim witnesses or uh, people giving testimony, experts, they weren't really witnesses, wasn't a criminal proceeding, but experts. Nothing. 
that they wanted to ask. Not a single question asked. And in the Wall Street Journal, Miss uh, Miss uh, Ali and Miss Nomani write the following. What happened that day, this is about their testimony, what happened that day was emblematic of a deeply troubling trend among progressives when it comes to confronting the brutal reality of Islamist extremism and what it means for women in many Muslim communities here at home and around the world. When it comes to the pay gap, abortion access, and workplace discrimination, progressives have much to say. But we're still waiting for a march against honor killings, child marriages, polygamy, sex slavery, or female genital mutilation. This is, end quote, this is an important issue that it's it's something that I bring up with some frequency here on the show is that the American left, the feminist left, progressive feminists in this country are silent on issues of Islamic oppression of women and are often complicit and and make and they are apologists for Islamic oppression of women because of the uh, centrality of intersectionality and identity politics to the Democratic Party and to its progressive uh, ideology. So they won't criticize Islam because Islam is considered a non-white minority religion, and that is more important to progressives than the suppression, uh, than the oppression of women that occurs on such a broad scale within Islam. I mean, there's no other ideology, there's no other system of beliefs in place that does as much to oppress women on a systemic and international scale as Islam. And yet there's a, a remarkable silence. Uh, here's what Miss, uh, Miss Ali and Miss Nomani continue on in this piece to write. The feminist mantra so popular when it comes to victims of sexual assault, believe women first, isn't extended to us. Neither is the notion that the personal is political. Our political conclusions are dismissed as personal, our personal experiences dismissed as political. Sitting before the senators that day were two women of color. Ayan is from Somalia, Azra is from India. Both of us were born into deeply conservative Muslim families. Ayan is a survivor of female genital mutilation and forced marriage. Azra defined Sharia by having a baby while unmarried. And we both have been threatened with death by jihadists for things we have said and done. Ayan cannot appear in public without armed guards. Two minority, so that's the quote from the piece, and two minority Muslim females are, are speaking before a Senate committee. They're at a Senate committee hearing. And the Democrat women who are sitting there representing the United States government, U.S. senators, have nothing to ask them. They, they have not a, not a single question that they want to pose. In fact, quite the opposite, uh, what we find out uh, later on in this piece is that there were concerns expressed by, um, by some. It wasn't, as Ion writes, benign neglect. Quote, at one point, Senator McCaskill said that she took issue with the theme of the hearing itself. Anyone who twists or distorts religion to a place of evil is an exception to the rule, she said. We should not focus on religion, adding that she was worried that the hearing, organized by Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican from Wisconsin, would underline that. 
In the end, the only questions asked of us about Islamist ideology came from Senator Johnson and his Republican colleague, Senator Steve Daines from Montana. Just as we are invisible to the mullahs at the mosque, we were invisible to the Democratic women in the Senate. Uh, Make no mistake about it. This is two minority Muslim females, Ali and Nomani, uh, writing the Wall Street Journal to call out these uh, Democrat, these female Democrat senators for cowardice and for hypocrisy. Uh, that they stand and make uh, claims for themselves about being advocates for women and for women's rights and to be models for, for you know, young girls to aspire to stand up for themselves and, and pursue careers, become U.S. senators. But when it comes to women in Islam, that's just politically too sensitive for them. That doesn't play to the preferred Democrat narrative. Uh, this is one of the most discrediting for modern feminism, one of the most discrediting aspects of it is that it is, just like we always hear from progressives about we li- living in a hierarchical society, and that's what intersectionality is all about. Intersectionality is a view of society that there are all these competing interests that are really identity groups, and it's zero-sum, and one benefits at the expense of another, and this is why uh, oppre- oppression theories and victimology are so central to the leftist academic and now leftist progressive orthodoxy that comes from them, that's overtaken much of the media. This is why the media all thinks a certain way. This is why Democrats have to play by these very hypocritical and, and yes, even opaque rules um, because the identity politics that they've embraced so much assert that the Democrat Party and the progressive left that is the primary ideology within it privileges racial issues above uh, gender discrimination issues, meaning that racism is a greater concern. Oppression as uh, as it relates to racism is a greater concern higher up in the hierarchy of grievances that Democrats have to adhere to and and adopt ideologically uh, that it's above oppression of women and therefore Islam's oppression of women can't be something that is uh, is dealt with by the by Democrats who want to remain in good standing and by progressives who want to be viewed favorably by MSNBC and the Daily Coast and all and Huffington Post because it would force difficult questions to be asked about a lot of countries that are predominantly ethnically non-white and the practices and the cultures that exist in these countries would be under scrutiny in a way that makes the left uncomfortable um, she writes Hersi Ali writes this is extreme moral relativism described as cultural sensitivity uh, that is absolutely true it is a, a really a perfect description of this And it is, uh, once again, an instance where we see that political correctness matters more even to women in the Democrat Party than the protection of women from all manner of vile oppression under Islamist theocracy. Had a quick break here, team. We've got much more. Stay with me. So 
So President Trump went on a bit of a tweet storm earlier today, and the media is, of course, seizing on his every word and trying to find ways to churn out stories about what this says about Trump and the investigation and Russia and collusion. But first, let's start with his tweet from this morning that Jay John- former Homeland Security Advisor Jay Johnson is latest top intelligence official to state there was no grand scheme between Trump and Russia. Now, this is worth Trump pointing out because we've all been led to believe that there's it's just a matter of time. The media has been telling us for months that it's just a matter of time before the whole scheme becomes unearthed, is, is put out in public view, and we find out that Trump-Russia collusion is a very real thing and that Trump is going to have to resign or be impeached or any anything like that. Jay Johnson was the, was the head of the Department of Homeland Security. If there was sensitive information out there in the intelligence community that Trump colluded with Russia, don't you think Jay Johnson would know about it? And also to the point that I keep repeating to you, don't you think that we would know about it via a leak, even if it were collected through a sensitive uh, method? Um, if it were still classified, I think somebody would tell the newspapers about it if it meant that the Trump administration would be in hot water. So I think that much is clear. But OK, so Trump earlier today or tweeted that. Then he writes, by the way, if Russia was working so hard on the 2016 election, it all took place during the Obama administration. Why didn't they stop them? Why did Democratic National Committee turn down the DHS offer to protect against hacks long prior to election. It's all a big dem hoax. Look, this is some strong stuff from the president here. He's saying that the hack of their servers, uh, from what I'm reading here, he's saying that there's a hoax at work here, that something's wrong. Um, This is the president of the United States, everybody. And maybe this is just part of his battle against the media. Maybe he truly believes that it's all a hoax. I, I don't know. I'm just... This is from the president's official Twitter account, and you can imagine it's getting a lot of attention. He continues with this theme. Why did the DNC refuse to turn over its server to the FBI and still hasn't? It's all a big Dem scam, an excuse for losing the election. Uh, So, look, he's he's putting this out there, and a lot of people are going to seize on it, both left and right, that the whole DNC server hack situation has been... Uh, well, has been a a construct put together by the Democrats uh, to justify Hillary losing the election. I I, I can't explain, and Jay Johnson couldn't explain why the Democrats wouldn't turn over their servers. I, I have to say that is strange to me. That does not make sense. There's no readily available explanation for it as far as I can see. Uh, but I, I, yeah, here's the president saying that it's, he says it's a hoax. He uses the word hoax. Let's just say what he's saying. Then he goes into a bit of politics. This, like I said, this was quite a Trump tweet storm today. I certainly hope, he writes, the Democrats do not force Nancy P out. That would be very bad for the Republican Party. And please let Crying Chuck stay. So they want, he wants Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to stay as leadership of the Democratic Party, I have to say, from a political analysis point of view, I think Trump is right here. I, mean, I think Pelosi is a uh, a drawback, is uh, holding back 
the Democrat Party. She's just not inspiring. She's a, a classic D.C. insider, married a lot of money, runs in a super liberal district, and uh, has just never said anything that I found to be uh, interesting, insightful, or worthwhile. But it's a great thing, I think, for the Republican Party to be facing such uh, entrenched, cronyist opposition from the House and Senate leadership on the Democrat side. Then Trump switches gears again a few hours later with all of the recently reported electronic surveillance, intercepts, unmasking and illegal and illegal leaking of information. I have no idea whether there are tape, quote, tapes, he writes, or recordings of my conversations with James Comey. But but I did not make and do not have any such recordings. So Trump is saying here that there are no Comey tapes. Now, he had that tweet a while back where he said, call me better, hope there are not tapes. I think this is just the way that Trump engages in his uh, Trumpian gamesmanship with the media, with the deep state opposition. I I, I think that's got to be what the strategy was here. Look, it, it's Trump translating is not always an easy thing to do. Um, but here we have the president... It, Admitting, stating, I, for the record, that he did not make any recordings with Comey. By the way, I never believed that he made recordings with Comey. That just didn't strike me as something that he would have done at the time. Um, but, you know, trying to figure out where Trump is going with all this or what his thought processes are is a difficult, a difficult game. That much I think we can all agree on. Um, that there's no recordings of his conversation with Comey, though, is a uh, is a good thing, I think, because if he was doing that, it would make him seem very Nixonian and, and it would allow for a lot of the press uh, Watergate accusations and parallels to be drawn and all that. Um, do I believe that Comey was completely uh, transparent about every word that was said between he and Trump? Mm, I think I think Comey's sketchy. I think he's shown himself to be. A, a very partisan player in all this in D.C., but Trump's statement that he had tapes, or or sorry, that Comey should worry that there were tapes. Trump never said he had tapes. Um, now telling us that he doesn't right before the deadline for producing them, it just seems like he is uh, he is playing the Trump game here. And how effective it is or not, I will... Leave to you to assess for yourselves, my friends. We'll hit a quick break. Coming right back at you. Stay with me. Today you will hear about the investigative details that we know thus far. I want to underscore that the investigation is active and evidence collection and analysis is ongoing. I will also advise that there are two shooting reviews that are taking place by Alexandria Police Department and the United States Capitol Police. Therefore, we are attempting to share as much information as possible without compromising the integrity of our investigations. At this time, the FBI has has assessed that the deceased shooter, James Thomas Hodgkinson, acted alone. We also assessed that there was no nexus to terrorism. The FBI is investigating this shooting as an assault on a member of Congress and assault on a federal officer. That was an utterly bizarre, in parts, FBI press conference held yesterday 
to update everybody on the status of the Hodgkinson uh, congressional shooting. And I just couldn't believe some of the responses that we were seeing from the senior FBI agents based on what we know so far already, what's out there in the open source, public source information about this case. Let's just review for a second, shall we? Hodgkinson, by all uh, all the evidence we've seen, and, and there's no debate or dispute about this, hated Republicans, wrote about his hatred for Republicans. He lived out of a van next to the baseball field where Republicans, as had been reported in the press, were known to practice in Alexandria, Republican members of Congress. This guy had bought a gun after the election, which I know is not necessarily indicative of anything, but we're putting all the pieces together here. He engaged in target practice that was so continuous that his neighbors complained about it when he was uh, up in his home state of Illinois. He uh, was parked out next to the field and was taking photos of both the location where the shooting was as well as other locations around D.C. where perhaps there could have been opportunities for him to get at Republican members of Congress. He rented out a storage unit where he was keeping different... uh, They're not even really sure yet, but they know that he was visiting there on a regular basis. He was doing searches about members of Congress and Republicans on his computers in the days up to this. He was conducting surveillance, everybody. He had a hit list of six members of Congress in his pocket. He bought the weapons. He planned this whole thing out. And he ambushed Republican members of Congress after making sure that they were, in fact, Republicans and not Democrats on that field. I mean, this guy, Hodgkinson, is the closest thing in real life that I can think of to the psychotic assassin John Malkovich in the movie In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood. I mean, the only thing Hodgkinson's missing here is, you know, hiding bullets in, in, a, in a rabbit's foot keychain or something. I mean, it's all right there. A loner, training, plotting, surveillance, all of this put together. And the FBI, for reasons that I honestly have to just guess at, I mean, I know we can come up with some. I know this is very politically sensitive. I get all that. But the FBI is acting like they can't put two and two together here. I am not exaggerating. The FBI has said that they weren't sure um, who he planned to target and why in this press conference. They're saying that maybe it was just a coincidence that uh, that, that Hodgkinson was at this baseball field when Congress was there. They said there's no nexus to terror. Okay, there's no connection to a terrorist group. But this was political violence. This was an intended mass assassination of Republican members of Congress by a leftist in this country. And violence or terrorism is just violence with a political motivation. How could this not be? It's so obviously an act of terror. It's so obviously terrorism. But when you listen to what some of these senior FBI officers were saying at this press conference, it reminded me of the redactions from the transcript at the Pulse nightclub shooting when all of a sudden we're not allowed to hear uh, the shooter say that he pledged allegiance to ISIS or we're not allowed to read it, at least. And we're not allowed to read that this was 
uh, part of uh, his effort to become a martyr. Uh, it, it was just completely unacceptable what happened there. I mean, the FBI redacting those transcripts was bizarre. And here we have the FBI acting like they can't figure out the most basic uh, motivations of somebody who has made it all obvious. All the pieces are there. He would not classify the six names in his pocket with Freedom Caucus members on it as a hit list, despite the fact that some of the people he then tried to assassinate with that list in his pocket were on the list. It's not, it's not a hit list. The gunman had a list of names of people he was about to shoot on him during the shooting. It's not, it's not a hit list. I, I mean, what is the FBI thinking here, everybody? And I mean, there's, there's more. He goes into the motivation question here, and this is this senior FBI official's response to the question about, do you have any, any sense of what Hodgkinson's motivation was here? Here's, here's what the FBI director said, or FBI, not a director, but the FBI agent uh, in charge of this press conference says. I do not know specifically those. I know that he was um, struggling in all kinds of different ways, um, but I do not know the specifics of why he intended or his motive at this time. Do not know the specifics of his motive at this time. Guys, ladies and gentlemen, come on. A third grader knows his motive by reading the news. The guy's dead. I mean, there's, there's not any... Uh, there's not any risk here of trampling on his on his rights or or defamation or something. Uh, he was the shooter, and he was trying to kill Republicans because they're Republicans. This was an act of terrorism. This was a yes. This was a domestic terrorist. Why can't we just say that? Why can't the FBI say that? I heard this press conference. I, I just I saw some people pointing out. Uh, last night that it was strange, and I watched it today, and I couldn't believe some of the stuff that was being said here. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, they even go on to suggest here that maybe it was coincidence that this shooter, Hodgkinson, was living in a van by the baseball field. I'm not sure. As the investigation unfolds, we'll try to figure that out. But he was staying in that particular parking lot and utilizing the YMCA and local libraries on a frequent basis. So it could be coincidence or um, we're going to have to determine what his thoughts were as we're moving forward with the case. It could be a coincidence that he's living next to the baseball field where he ambushed these members of Congress. As I said, this guy, Hodgkinson, had done surveillance. He had prepared. He had, he had uh, trained himself. He had been target. He's been doing target practice. They said later on in this that they didn't think that the photos he took of the baseball field or other sites, quote, represented surveillance of intended targets. Uh, what does surveillance of intended targets look like then, folks? This was as clear-cut a planned political assassination and act of domestic terror as you're going to find anywhere. It could not be more straightforward or obvious, and that the FBI is here 
acting like they haven't been able to figure out some of this stuff is just, uh, it's, it's astonishing. Um, what else do they have to know? What additional information would have to be brought to bear here for them to, I don't know, be clear about this guy's motive or be able to tell us definitively that this was a, an act of violence uh, for political motivation, which is the definition of terrorism. Uh, this guy was just a, a few, uh, you know, a, a few moments away, and had it not been for the presence of those two Capitol police officers, from a mass assassination of Republican members of Congress, and it would have sent this country into a place that is so dark, and the political divisions would have become so much steeper, I think, than they already are. And, and we just barely averted it, and yet you've got this, what seems like a, a downplaying or a, a, a willful blindness to what happened here. I, I just, it is unfathomable to me. You have to watch this press conference to believe it. I mean, when you listen to these answers, and just because he didn't search for something on the internet, it doesn't mean that he wasn't finding other ways to get the information. They kept talking about, well, he did not search, you know, for the congressional baseball game on the internet, so maybe he didn't, maybe we can't know for sure that that was his target. This guy camped out. He turned, his whole life became about this act, about this assassination. Like I said, Hodgkinson was Malkovich, the Malkovich character plays in In the Line of Fire, which is actually a pretty good Eastwood movie, about an attempted presidential assassination. This guy became that for members of Congress. Hodgkinson became that psychotic, completely dedicated assassin. And the FBI sitting here telling us, oh, well, we're not really sure about his motive. I mean, this was just... Crazy. Uh, we'll hit a break here, team. We'll be right back. Don't think that it can't happen here, my friends, because it's just a matter of time before the left in this country uh, pushes for some of the policies that have already been enacted by the left in Europe. Uh, this was a New York Times piece from the last 24 hours. Didn't get very much attention, but I think it should. In Germany, a coordinated campaign across uh, 14 states involved police raids on the homes of 36 people accused of hateful postings over social media, including threats, coercion, and incitement to racism. Most of the raids concerned politically motivated right-wing incitement, according to the Federal Criminal Police officer, uh, Office, whose officers conducted home searches and interrogations. But the raids also targeted two people accused of left-wing extremist content, as well as one person accused of making threats or harassment based on someone's sexual orientation. Uh, so they are locking people up for hate speech in Germany. I mean, they are sending police on raids to people's homes because of hate speech in Germany now. Um, and the German, uh, the German legislature is discussing a new social media law that will be intended to crack down even further on hate speech. Uh, and it will force the biggest uh, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter to remove hate speech immediately from their platforms or face fines 
of up to $53 million. Okay? Think about that for a moment. If, if Facebook and Twitter don't act quickly enough now, they could, under this proposed law in Germany, face enormous fines, many, many millions of dollars, even enough to get the attention of a company like Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and there is some backlash against this in Germany, some pushback, uh, but it seems more and more like this is likely to go through. Um, there was a recent study done, and this is the, the one side by the Times, that Facebook deleted just 39% of illegal hate speech within 24 hours in January and February, despite signing a code of conduct in 2015 pledging to meet the standard. Twitter deleted just 1%. Uh, so there are these rules already, and the social media platforms are finding it difficult to police all of the speech all the time. Uh, this should be this should be something that really gets a lot of attention in this country because there are similar efforts and arguments that are being made here to uh, police speech. You know, in, in Canada, people have been talking a lot, I've mentioned it here on the show, about the criminalization of the usage of the wrong pronoun. Uh, but there have also been discussions in recent years in Canada uh, particularly in the post-9-11 era, about the limits of criticism of Islam under the law in Canada. And they have all of these incitement to uh, religious or racial hatred statutes that either are on the books or that the progressive left in Canada wants to, uh, wants to add to the books. And there's a similar movement here in this country because everyone understands that if you control the dialogue, you control the politics, Right. If you control what can be said and how people can say things, then you from there can manipulate their political perceptions very easily. And you've established control, a control that in a pre-digital era, quite honestly, would have been impossible. Um, and I, I think that this might at some level force people to go back to the old days of you know, being pamphleteers if they really continue to push this, because it's so difficult sometimes to tell what is acceptable speech and what is not. I mean, based on what? Community standards? What's a community standard? Does it change with the region of the country you're in? Does it change with the times? Well, I, I guess it does. But how can anyone be held responsible for a standard that cannot be de defined or even accurately described that is constantly changing and that is subjective? And therefore, has to be subjectively applied. I, I just, I don't, I don't know. I, I see this happening in Germany, and there's so much. And by the way, the UK has similar laws and taking similar action. And a lot of it has to do with radical Islam. Let's just be honest about it. A lot of it has to do with talking about Muslim immigration and those who oppose that find themselves on the wrong side of these statutes that are censorship statutes. That, that, that is what they are. Unless somebody is directly and credibly uh, calling for violence, what is the justification that exists for shutting down this speech? I'm not, I don't even, I'm speaking about this in the abstract. I haven't even read the posts, but if you're telling me that there are legal grounds now in European countries and in Canada 
not just for eliminate. Look, Facebook and Twitter can pull anything off the internet that they anything off their platforms that they want to. They're private companies, and I think people forget that. But now we're talking about the law. Now we're talking about real core First Amendment protection, and it will be in severe jeopardy. I mean, I think the First Amendment, in a sense, ceases to exist if, in fact, we get to a place where speech that is mean or uncomfortable or offends is criminalized. Now, there was that Supreme Court victory earlier about the band that has the name The Slants. Uh, So hate speech right now is looking like it is protected in this country. But when you see what's going on in Germany, in the UK, in Europe, in Canada, there is this global, well, this Western trend uh, to suppress speech based on political correctness and something we need to be very wary of at all times. Uh, Team, I always appreciate you hanging out with me here in the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much. For, for joining me on the show. Do download the podcast. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes and uh, spread the word. I actually saw a member of Team Buck today on the street. He said, hey, Buck Sexton, listen to your podcast. It was great to get a chance to chat with uh, one of my NYC Team Buck squad. So I'm hoping that uh, he passes the word. I'm hoping you all pass the word. We're going to have a fun Freestyle Friday show tomorrow night. Until then, Shield Time.